Great to be here. Uh, If you want to go ahead and grab your Bibles or your mobile phones or various other electronic devices with the Bible on them, we are going to be in Luke chapter 8. Just to very quickly uh, recap what we saw last time. Uh, If you were here, you uh, hopefully will remember. If you weren't, well, you're going to get a bonus this morning. You're going to hear a summary of what we saw last time. Jesus uh, tells a famous story uh, of a farmer sowing seed, and he likens the seed in the story to the Word of God. If you're around last time, hopefully you'll remember, the issue is what sort of a reception God's Word is given by the hearers. Really, the the, the question last time, and in fact this time as well, is what are we going to do with God's Word? How's the Word of God going to affect my life? Because it's one thing to hear it, but what am I going to do as a result of it? That's the question that really this first chunk of Luke chapter 8 is dealing with. So Jesus says pretty much a summary statement of this whole passage, verse 18, pay attention to how you hear. You see, whenever God speaks to us, we're faced with a very real challenge. Whenever we open the Bible to read it, whenever we sit down like we are now, uh, listening to someone preaching, whenever we discuss the Bible in our life group, uh, each time we do that, the challenge is, am I simply going to listen and hopefully agree, but at the end of the day, go away the same as I was before? Or am I going to hold on to what I hear and am I going to apply God's Word to how I live my life? Because as Jesus goes on to promise in this passage, if we use what God has given us, it'll increase. Jesus says to those who listen to my teaching, and from the context, the implication is, and obey it, do something about it, to those people, more understanding will be given. But if we don't do anything about it, we'll find that even what we thought we had will be blown away. Jesus says, but for those who are not listening, even what they think they understand will be taken away from them. I suggest that some of us are perhaps in problems in our spiritual lives, maybe even this morning, maybe from time to time, because what we're doing is hearing the Word of God, but we're not doing anything about it. It's like we are not living in the good of it. And if we do that long enough, in the end, we'll wake up one day and find that, spiritually speaking, really there isn't a whole lot there anymore. Because we've heard it all and done nothing about it. So pay attention to how you hear. Pay attention to how you hear. So hearing is the first stage in this whole process. But the problem is, we all hear a tremendous amount of words every day. It's like we suffer from information overload. Realistically speaking, we can only ever act on a very small amount of the myriad of messages we hear every day. Subconsciously then, even now, we'll be constantly sifting the messages we receive. 
text messages, emails, messages in the media, messages as we speak to others. Uh, And we only act on the ones that we are convinced are most important. For example, tomorrow morning, if you get two letters in the post, one offering you two pence off a loaf of bread, and the other from a reputable source informing you that you have won an all-expenses-paid trip to New York, I underline from a reputable source, I'm guessing you would treat those two letters very differently. You you might stash away the voucher for two pence off a loaf of bread on the off chance that you might remember to use it the next time you might visit the supermarket. Chances are you'll forget all about it though. But you wouldn't just leave the offer of a free trip to New York stuffed under a pile of papers in the kitchen somewhere. Uh, I'm guessing you would probably make it a fairly big priority to do something about it. You see, we act on the messages we value the most. Now, do you see what that says about our attitude towards God when maybe we don't act on the message He sent us? Think about it. What message are we sending back to God when day by day, week by week, month by month, we hear His Word and do little or nothing about it? Aren't we effectively saying it's not all that important to us? Or we simply don't trust Him, we don't think He's a reputable source? So to wrap up what we saw last time, this is still all the summary of last time, Jesus tells us in verse 15 how he expects us to respond to God's Word. He says, the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's Word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. He's saying, we're to be honest about where we're at and not duck the issue. So this morning, as you listen to God's Word, allow it to put a mirror up in front of you and highlight and expose where you're at, what's going on in your life. Be honest where you're at, and then cling on to God's Word. Don't let go of what He says, because there'll be all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of things going on, even today, to distract you from clinging on to God's Word going to need a whole lot of patience in this, because to apply God's Word to our lives does take time. There are no short-term fixes, so pay attention to how you hear. Now, the passage we are going to be focusing in on this morning, Luke goes on to develop this theme of our response to God's Word. And I want us to look at it under three simple headings. Firstly, there's an unexpected priority. Let's pick it up, Luke chapter 8, joining the story in verse 19. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. Now, just by way of background, we we know from the other Gospels that Jesus had at least four brothers and two sisters. We also know from Mark's account that 
they thought Jesus had completely lost his mind. So much so that they came to see Jesus on this occasion with the intention of taking him back to Nazareth with them. And you kind of understand where they're coming from. I mean, hands up if you have a brother. Anyone with a brother? The majority of you have a brother. Imagine if your brother said, hi, I'm God and I've come to be the saviour of the whole world. I'm guessing you'd be like, you know, you need to come home with me and drink some herbal tea and not say these things to anyone else. It's okay, we're going to try and get you some help. You desperately need some help. You're clearly not well. That is where Jesus' family started out. They didn't immediately say, oh yeah, of course he's God. They were convinced over time, particularly by the resurrection. Once he rises from the dead, they're like, well, that we were not expecting. Uh, Some of that God stuff he was talking about now seems slightly more plausible, ever so slightly more credible. So Jesus rises from the dead, and the next thing we know, his mother is right there in the midst of the 120 that made up the first church in the upper room uh, on the day of Pentecost. Uh, And we see his own brothers, James and Jude, not only becoming leaders in the first church, but also penning a couple of books in the New Testament. They're proclaiming boldly, our big brother is the sinless Lord God Saviour of all. We're convinced he's conquered Satan, sin and death through the cross and through the resurrection. Don't know what you think, but in my mind, that's got to be one of the most compelling arguments we have for Christianity. I mean, it's hard enough getting your brothers or your sisters just to like you. If you can get them to worship you as God... That's pretty impressive. Anyway, returning to Luke's account here. Verse 20, someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to see you. Now, you might have expected verse 21 to say, and so Jesus sent one of his disciples and said, make a way through the crowd so these important people whom I love dearly, my mother and brothers, may come to the place where I am that we may commune together. He doesn't say that at all. He replies, verse 21, my mother and my brothers are all those who hear God's word and obey it. So family ties are not the priority. Jesus doesn't stop his teaching in order to meet with and talk to his family. He doesn't send one of his disciples to fetch them. Instead, he challenges the very assumption that he should be with them with an unexpected priority. It's not family relationships that matter the most. Actually, it's obedience to the Word of God. Just to say... I don't think it's that Jesus doesn't love or care for his family. Later on, several years later, we find him on the cross, making arrangements from the cross for his mother to be 
looked after. It's not that Jesus doesn't love or care for his family. He's just saying that something else is even more important. The most important thing in your life, he says, is to hear God's Word and obey it. As the message version of this verse puts it, obedience runs thicker than blood. Now, I know for a fact, some of you live with this tension. You love your family, but they're not Christians. And from time to time, they give you advice that you find it very hard to take on board. I don't know, maybe they say, look, I don't think you should be quite so committed to the church. I don't understand why you say you want to hold out until you can marry a Christian. I mean, seriously, you're limiting your options massively here. Can't you guys live together before you get married just to check out that you're really compatible? But I don't think you should give so much money away. I don't think you should be talking to people about Jesus quite as much as you do. If I'm being honest, I'm just not comfortable with the fact you want to convert others to your faith. To which we have to say, look, I'm sorry. Although I love you and care about what you think, you need to understand that in my life, God comes first. Now, I know you're going to struggle to understand, but I just can't go along with you on this because you're conflicting with what God says. That's what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't reject his family. He just affirms that something else is far more important. The most important thing in your life is to hear God's Word and obey it. If you want to be close to Jesus, that's how to do it. You listen to what He says, and you obey Him. The true family of God are those who want to do His will above everything else. Now, put it like that, where do you stand? If God were to run a DNA test on you, would your obedience to His Word prove a positive match? Or would you be left standing outside claiming to be family, but your actions proving otherwise? The unmistakable message of this passage is that Jesus places a very real priority on not just hearing His Word, but going away and doing what He says. So let me ask you, what are you doing with what God says to you week by week? See, you're never going to grow as a Christian by simply sitting there and letting the words wash over you in the hope that something one day might stick. You need to exercise your mind. You need to Go out to try to hear what God's saying. Hold on to it and take steps, whatever works for you, to apply it to your life and persevere with it. And that results in nearness to Jesus. That's the whole point. It's all about closeness 
to Jesus. And the people with whom Jesus identifies the most are those who respond to His Word. So, if you're here today and you want to know Jesus better, here's how to do it. Listen to what He says and obey it. And if you can't be bothered to do that, then you've probably proved that you're not truly part of His family. That's the first thing we see here, an unexpected priority. Second thing Luke shows us is an unrecognized opportunity. As the disciples heard what Jesus said in verse 21 about those who are His true family, uh, I'm guessing they were sitting there pretty smug. Well, that's us then. We are hearing God's Word and putting it into practice. We're here in the room with Him. We really belong. And I'm guessing that maybe some of us have had similar thoughts passing through our minds over the last few minutes. Well, the good news is Jesus often gives us opportunities to prove what we say by putting it into practice. And that's precisely what happens to the disciples in verses 22 to 24. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and started out. As they sailed across, Jesus settled down for a nap. But soon, a fierce storm came down on the lake. The boat was filling with water and they were in real danger. The disciples went and woke him, shouting, Master, Master, we're going to drown. When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and the raging waves. Suddenly, the storm stopped and all was calm. Then he asked them, Where is your faith? Now, do you see what's going on here? This was a great opportunity, straight after Jesus' teaching, for the disciples to show that they were hearing the Word of God and putting it into practice. Jesus had been proclaiming that He's the King. He was coming to bring in the Kingdom of God. He's the Lord of all. He's the one with all authority. His words hold ultimate power. They'd heard all of this and said, we're with Jesus. We're on His team. We believe what he says. We, returning to the parable we looked at last time, we're we're the equivalent of the good soil. When it comes to a sudden crisis, instead of acting on his word, they panicked. Spiritual logic should have told them that as long as they were there in the boat with Jesus, they couldn't have been in a safer place. I mean, what were the chances of the ruler of the universe perishing in a sudden storm that was merely a natural product of the world that he had created in the first place. But there again, spiritual logic is often weak in the face of fear, isn't it? I think what this episode reveals is that the disciples still had a tremendous amount to learn. Don't hear me wrong, they, they did the right thing to call on Jesus for help. When 
we're in a moment of crisis when we're faced with difficulty or disaster or a situation we just don't know how to get through. It's the right thing to do to call out to Jesus. But they did it from fear and not from faith. And Jesus is like, well, why couldn't you have believed in the first place that I wouldn't let you drown? But in his grace, Jesus uses their failure here to trust in him as a stepping stone to increase their faith. He demonstrates to them yet again the power of his word. He provides them with further reason to have confidence in what he says. He stands up and rebukes the wind and the raging waters and in response to his word, the storm stopped and all was calm. Do you see? He made the entire universe by the word of his mouth and he still controls it by his word. Be honest. Is that the Jesus you believe in? Do you believe he's in control? Do you honestly believe that he is sovereign over everything? Do you believe he holds all authority? Do you believe it? If you do, surely it begs the question why perhaps sometimes we have a tendency to worry and panic when we face a crisis. Why is it that we all, myself included, live at times as though our lives aren't in his hands. Why do we often find it so hard to believe that he can control our situation? The creation instantly recognizes its master and obeyed him. Why don't we at times? The point, you see, is this. Here was an opportunity to exercise faith in Jesus' power over all things, and the disciples failed to recognize it. So Jesus gives them this stunning demonstration of just how powerful his word really is. I mean, yesterday evening when the rain was just kind of pouring down, uh, imagine if Russ had pitched up at your house, knocked on the door, said, come and look at this rain, and said, watch this, rain, stop, in a moment, stopped. I mean, you would have been pretty amazed, wouldn't you? I mean, you would have been here early this morning, kind of telling people, you should have seen what Russ did. I mean, it's amazing. What authority, what power. That's effectively what Jesus did in this story. And in verse 25, we're told that the disciples were terrified and amazed. Who is this man? They asked each other. When he gives a command, even the wind and the waves obey him. In the calm, after the storm had passed, the logic of the situation finally begins to surface. It's inescapable. They have to ask, who is this man? If creation obeys him, why haven't we obeyed him? Why haven't we trusted him? Listen, regardless of your circumstances, You've got to believe his word. 
and act on it. Ultimately, no crisis you face, no calamity, no difficulty can separate us from his love. It's merely an opportunity to demonstrate our faith in him. And so thirdly, we see here an inescapable question. In fact, actually, there are two inescapable questions here. Because who is this man is the question I think we all have to face up to if we're serious about looking into Christianity. It it all hinges on who Jesus is. Perhaps some of us haven't yet nailed that question. I just want to underline it right now in your mind. If that's your situation today, you're still not sure who Jesus is, it's absolutely fine to be asking that question. Go on asking it, but go on listening to his word as well. Pay attention to how you hear, because you've got to come to an answer to that question in the end. Either you've got to come to the place where you admit that Jesus is the Lord and you need to trust him with your whole life, or you reject him. By all means, keep examining the evidence. This is a good place. This is a safe place to keep coming and examining the evidence. But ultimately, you must come to a conclusion. Who is this Jesus? But I guess most of us here today would say we know who he is. We'd say he is the Lord of all. In which case, every time we find ourselves tempted to be anxious, tempted to worry, tempted to panic in the face of a crisis, we face that other question at the beginning of verse 25 where Jesus asks, where is your faith? Where's your faith? Listen, if the disciples really knew who Jesus is, their terror would have been trust. And so should ours. So should ours. But we find it hard, don't we? The problem is, we know it all in theory, but sometimes we don't know how to put it into practice in real life. When the boat looks like it's going to get swamped and we think that we're about to sink, somehow logic seems to go out of the window. And the reason is, either we don't really think Jesus has the power to change our situation, or we don't believe that he is loving enough to really work for our best in the situation. I think probably that's why we don't trust him at times. I mean, let's just work through this for a moment. When we worry when we're anxious, we either think God has lost control or He is in control, but I don't like the way He's controlling things. I don't think He's right in this situation. We ask ourselves, why would He want me to face this crisis? Why on earth is He allowing me to go through this? Surely, if he really loved me and really had the power that he says he has, I'd be airlifted out of this situation, wouldn't I? 
And if he isn't big enough or caring enough to do it, then I really am in a panic. Because if I can't rely on God, then I'm completely sunk. Master, I'm going to drown. Isn't that the mechanism of worry, of anxiety, of panic? I think we'll probably all relate to this. So don't dodge Jesus' question. Where's your faith? Because real faith trusts and obeys God's Word even when it doesn't seem to be working and you can't see how it can possibly ever work out. That's real faith. It's another thing altogether to say, look, I'll be a disciple, I'll be a follower of Jesus as long as he runs my life the way I want him to. That's not faith. That's not even a relationship. It's more like a backup plan, an insurance policy. I think Jesus would ask you right now, where is your faith? What if he chooses to take me through hard times? What if he sends me out in the boat and a storm blows up and swamps me? What if he does that to teach me that he's far more reliable than I thought and that his promises are far more dependable than I ever believed they would be and his word is far more powerful than I ever imagined when things were going well for me? What if he deliberately puts me into the boat in the storm to do that? Am I going to trust him then? Where's your faith? Because you see, it's a demonstration of the limitless love for us of God that he is always coaxing us, moving us, always developing us, never content to let us sit back and think we've got enough faith now. He's always growing it, always building it, always stretching it. So we end up in the place where our default response isn't one of worry or anxiety or panic, but one of trust. So we say, the water's coming over the edge and it looks like everything is sinking. It looks like I'm going to drown, but I know I'm safe with you and I'm going to trust you and commit myself to you and keep on clinging to your powerful word. Uh, And I have faith that you will never let me down and you will never let me go and nothing ultimately can separate me from your love. And ultimately, whatever happens to me in this life, I know I'm going to be with you forever in glory. I'm going to hold on to those things. I'm going to keep on believing them. However great the storms of life may be, however threatening, however overwhelming, because I believe that you are the Lord. And I'm convinced that you can't love me more than you do right now, and you will never love me less than you do right now. And you want me, you're calling me to trust you, and obey you, and believe in you. And I want to receive your word, and act on what I hear, by consciously putting my faith in you. Whatever the pressures, whatever the temptations to doubt, I'm going to keep on trusting you because I know you have me in your grip. And in the end, it's not my faith, 
It's your power to calm the storm. It's your ability to bring me safely home. It's your commitment to me because you love me and you gave yourself for me. That is the great solid reality. And nothing can get through to my life that isn't in your plan for me. And I know I'm not just here by accident. I'm convinced I'm not merely a victim in a universe that has no meaning. I'm a child of my Heavenly Father who loved me enough to give His Son to die for me. And so I'm going to believe Him and show that I believe Him by doing what He says. So pay attention to how you hear. Be those who hear God's word and obey with faith. For Jesus would say, those are the people who are my true family. I want to pray. And I want to pray specifically for those of us who want to respond to God's word right now in faith. Maybe you can relate to what I'm saying about at times being overcome with fear or anxiety or worry. Maybe there are things that you know God has called you to do, things that God is asking you to do in obedience to Him, but for whatever reason you're holding back from applying His Word to your life. Perhaps you're in the situation where you're grappling with the whole question of who is this man? You haven't fully resolved it yet. Maybe you're here today and you are coming under a whole lot of pressure from your family or from your friends to compromise what God says. Whatever your situation, I'm asking you, will you respond with faith? If you're willing to say today, I'm going to trust God's word, I want to respond in faith. I believe it's true. I want to do what it says. I want to invite you to stand right now. I want to pray for you.